Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for, for Christian fellowship and community. We want to thank you for the opportunity to give. And we also give you thanks, Lord, for what you have given and being the first to be a, a heart that is liberal in your most precious gifts. We pray, Father, that um, you will speak to our hearts this morning, that you will guide us through the passages of Scripture and help us to arrive at truth, to arrive at the feet of Jesus, and to love him more, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Job, chapter 1. Job, chapter 1. When you're there, you can say amen. If you're not there, say have mercy. Okay. Job, chapter 1. Just go to the book of Psalms and then go back one book. Job, in the first chapter. When I was in college, right as I was coming into my conversion to Christianity, I used to be a CNN addict. I would be like a CNN-ite. I was obsessed with CNN, and I, I would watch the news for at least an hour or two hours every day before I went to school. And forgive me for this illustration, but we're all adults, and we promised that we will keep it real, so I'm going to do just that. But as I was watching CNN, they were discussing the... the uh, rapid expansion of the AIDS epidemic throughout the continent of Africa, and that they were highlighting one particular instance in which a group of men in an African village decided to rape a virgin girl who was very, very, very young. Because they were told that if you sleep with the virgin, you will lose your AIDS. And as I watched this story, and I remember, you know, I don't cry about many things. Short of Christ and short of the gospel and the forgiveness of God, there's very few things that can bring me to tears. And that's just the result of growing up with a hard life. You've already seen a lot of things at a very young age. So you just become callous because you have to just learn to move on in life. But this instance just got to my heart. And of course on the news they're highlighting this and people are talking, you know, look at these tragedies. And of course someone comes on and says, see, what did this, what did this young girl, this baby girl, do to deserve this terrible act? Why is it that bad things happen to good people? And so in looking at this question, I, I, I immediately find that amongst college students, amongst even high school students, and even amongst the most staunch atheists and people who refuse to give their lives to God, this is one of the underlying issues and questions. And I'm not proposing to you that in the next 28, 29 minutes that I'm going to solve this eternal conundrum of many ages and centuries. But I do believe that the Bible does shed light upon this. 
And as many of you have known so far that when we've talked about questions that you have had, one of the critical things to do is that each question comes with a bag of assumptions, and so you want to challenge the questioner in their question. So, for example, when someone says, why is it that bad things happen to good people? It comes with a bag of assumptions. And so I look at them and I say, so you're assuming that bad things should only and always happen to bad people, right? Because if bad things only and always happen to bad people, you wouldn't be asking the question. And in your question, you're assuming good things should only and always happen to good people. And the person kind of looks at you like, yeah, I guess I kind of agree with that. So now, if bad things should only and always happen to bad people and good things should only and always happen to good people, how do you define who's a good person? How many sins can you commit and still be a good person? Then they start getting a little uncomfortable. Because you just said you believe that bad things should only and always happen to bad people. And a bad person is a person who does what? Who sins. And how many sins does it take for us to be bad? How many? That's all it took for Adam, right? We discussed that in our senior Bible class. Through one man. One choice at one moment. So in looking at the book of Job, I believe that if we don't understand this question and these concepts as the background to the book of Job, we miss what I believe God is trying to say to us through the book of Job on the issue of suffering and pain. And I wish I could just do the whole week of prayer on this just because there's so much in here. Genesis 1, Job chapter 1, the lessons are endless on the issue of suffering and pain and evil. And so I want to go through this very quickly this morning to at least make one of the points that I think the author of Job, which inspiration tells us is Moses, is trying to make on this issue of suffering. So the first thing is, in Job chapter 1, Verse 1, the Bible says, there was a man in the land of what? Us. Us means wood. It means what? Wood. The name Job means afflicted. So you have a man named afflicted from a place of wood. Now I find that interesting. I, obviously Job is not a good Bible baby name, right? Don't name your son afflicted. I just wouldn't recommend it, but someone decided to name their son Job, which is afflicted. And it says in verse 1, we're going to notice at least five to six attributes about Job. So we're going to go through these very quickly. So point number one in verse 1, it says, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who what? Feared God and shuns evil. So the first thing we learn about Job is his character. Is his what? Character. Please, please don't ever forget this. In the eyes of heaven, a man or a woman is just what they are in their character. We assess people by height, by skill, by ability, by knowledge. But the first thing God is concerned about is your character. 
Are you a person of integrity? Too many times, atheists will come to me and they say, Sebastian, you know, I love to believe in God. And you guys use this designer argument. Look, you had a pizza. If a pizza showed up at your door, you wouldn't be like, oh, look, it evolved into a pizza at my door. And the atheist argues and says, well, Sebastian, you know, you're right. I wouldn't think that. But here's the difference. I can go to Louis's Pizza. And I can go and see Louis make a pizza, but I can't go to God's universe factory and see where he produced the universe. I can't watch him at work, according to you. So therefore, I would conclude, right, if a pizza ended up and there's no Louis pizza, it didn't come from Louis. And you say, well, Louis made this pizza, but you can't go to where Louis is. And they said, look, if you show me God's universe factory, I'll believe in him. And then I look at them. I said, so what you're saying is, if I took you to show you God's universe factory, you will believe in God? That's what you said? Yes. So let's back up a little bit. So what you're saying is, you have a principle of life that when you come to know something to be true, you immediately apply it to your life. Is that what you're saying? They're like, yes. So then... Do you know that smoking causes cancer? Yes. Do you want cancer? No. Do you smoke? Yes. Then it seems to me that your issue is not an issue of knowledge because you know many things that are right, that are wrong, that are true, that are false, and yet you do not apply them to your life. So don't tell me if I give you X, Y, and Z evidence, you will believe. That is a lie. Because your life says, I follow the truth that I want to follow. Not all truth, just the truth that's convenient for me. And so this issue of character, character is determined. Listen to me very carefully. What you do with what you know reveals your character. You see, if I look at this young man and I know that he's sick and I'm a doctor and I know that I have the cure to cure him of his disease and I don't cure him, what kind of doctor am I? Am I a good doctor or an evil doctor? If I know that, you know, if I start dating this girl, I know that I have no feelings for her. I have no interest for her. And eventually we're going to break up and it's going to break her heart and she'll be crushed. And I still date her. What kind of person am I? Am I a good person or an evil person? Because what I do with what I know reveals my character. And at the very heart of Job's life, to say that the man is blameless, upright, one who fears God and shuns evil... That means Job is a man that says, when you reveal something to me as the truth, I follow that. That is the basis of life. And in the judgment, no one's going to be lost because they didn't have access to some secret knowledge. No one's going to be lost because they didn't do X, Y, and Z action. Unless you climb Mount Everest and get to the top, you cannot enter into heaven. But you know what people will be lost for? Because they don't do what they know. That's why people will be lost.
Job was a man of character. The Bible says he was blameless. And I wish I could take more time to preach about what it means to fear God. Because there's too many people in this world that do not fear God. Some of us are bold, audacious, prideful. The stuff that comes out of some people's mouth, I'm like, you cannot fear God. And do you know who you're talking about? I don't care, you know, I'll just tell God to his face. An atheist guy was in a debate and he said, look, what are you going to do if when you die, you appear before the judgment seat of God and you find out all along you were wrong. God does exist. There is a judgment. The atheist man said, I'll tell him not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. I'm like, really? That's what you're going to tell God? You think God is like, you know, Mr. Wilson, your friendly neighbor? Why don't you believe in me? Oh, you know, not enough, ev- not enough evidence. We haven't even been in the presence of God to know what we'll be going through our being to stand in the presence of him, who knows? You can't fool God. You can't lie. You can't pretend. You are transparent to him. Only to feel it. But Job was a man of character. Verse 2, the Bible says, And Job had seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So how many children did Job have? Ten children. In the Bible, right, I believe it's Psalm 126, where the Bible talks about the fact that children are a heritage from the Lord. And blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is that in the Old Testament, it is such a bad thing to be barren. To not be able to have children. And the reason was it was viewed as a curse from God. So when Sarah was barren where you have Elizabeth in the New Testament is barren. It's like, it's like this huge embarrassment because people look at you and they say, why did God prevent you from having children? Is there something wrong with you? That God is like, you know what? I can't give you any children. You're going to mess their lives up and lead them into hell. So the assumption in the Jewish mind is, why are you unable to have children? Because you're cursed of God. But on the flip side, if you're able to have lots of children, that means you are blessed of God. God favors you. He wants you to raise many sons and daughters for him. And so Job had ten children. So the first thing we learned about Job was his what? Make sure you're awake. What was the first thing we learned about Job? His character. Second thing we learned about his what? His what? His children. It's not a trick question. We go on in verse 3. It says, also, he, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. That means Job had a lot of servants. Back in those days, you don't measure wealth by what you have in your bank account. You measure it in animals. You know that one camel can drink up to 50 gallons of water? How many camels did he have? How many camels? 
3,000. How much water does that take? You're talking about 150,000 gallons of water for one drink. In. Sounds to me that Job was a wealthy man. Yes or no? 3,000 camels? And who's feeding those camels? You know the story of Rebecca, right? She comes and as Eleazar is there and he's like, oh, the woman who will offer to not only give me something to drink, but also my camels. Why would he make that test? Because for a woman to go up and down from the well and back, she'd have to get at least 40 to 60 gallons per camel. And Eleazar sat there and this woman went up and down, up and down, up and down until every camel was done drinking. That's 10 camels. Job had 3,000. And wealth in the Jewish mind, this was a sign of a blessing from God. Because if you were poor, it was considered you were cursed of God. You remember the rich young ruler? Yes or no? He came to Jesus, what must I do to be saved, right? Jesus said, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And you shall have treasure in heaven. He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. You know what the disciples said? After Jesus said, you know, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be saved. The disciples said, what? They turned to Jesus and they said, who then can be saved? Because in their mind, it was a sign that God was like, look, you are so blessed, you are so favored of heaven, that heaven decided to take some of its riches and give you a down payment on earth. I'm going to give you some of the riches now. And Job, we said the first thing about Job was his what? Character. Second thing was? His children. Third thing was? His wealth. His riches. This man is clearly blessed of God. Multiple children. He's got multiple amounts of money. This guy is a multimillionaire in his day. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It tells you at the end of verse 3. It says, so that this man was the what? Greatest of all the people of the East. This is Job's reputation. Everybody knows who Job is. He is the wealthiest most prosperous, and the most honest and integrity-bearing man in town. They all know this. Greatest of the East. You hear the name Job, people automatically have respect. But the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible says in verse 5, so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that God would send and sanctify them. That's talking about Job's children. And he would rise when? I can't hear you. Early in the morning. He would rise early in the morning, the Bible says, and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. So not only is Job, the first thing we learned about Job is his what? Character. Second thing, children. Third thing, wealth. Fourth, do you remember? His reputation. Now the Bible says Job gets up early in the morning. And he, 
sacrifices a burnt offering for every child. Now think about this for a moment. Here's a man who's running a multi-million dollar operation, and he wakes up in the morning not to look at spreadsheets and numbers, but he wakes up and calls each one of his children, all 10 of them, every morning. And he takes them to the altar, and he sacrifices an offering for them. Do you know how hard it is to give a burnt offering? That means until it's completely consumed. So now we have Job, character, children, wealth, reputation, and he's a faithful priest of his home. You can tell what's important to a person by what makes them get up early in the morning. And as if that was not enough, the Bible says (laughs) that Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. We all have our superstar spiritual days. Some days you and I wake up, we got our devotions, we prayed, good prayer time. We asked the Lord, give me victory today. We're getting victories and we're like, yeah, man, Thursday is a great day. I've just been soaring spiritually. And then tomorrow you wake up, Friday, and then you're like, oh, man. <laughs> Didn't have any devotions, woke up late, missed my alarm, late to class. I got written up, got into an argument with another student. By the time you get back to your dorm, you're like, man, I wish this day never happened. But what happened to Thursday? But the Bible says it's one thing to live a spiritual life. It's another thing to live a consistent one. Job was consistent. Now let's review. And then I'm going to sprint to my conclusion. The first thing we learned about Job is his what? His character. Second thing we learned about Job is his children. Third thing is? Wealth. Fourth? Reputation. Fifth? He's a faithful priest of his home. And sixth? He lives a what? Consistent life. Now, I don't know about you, but do we have a good man on our hands? Yes or no? You know even Solomon got corrupted by riches and prosperity. But not Job. So now, if we have a good man on our hands, when I first came to read the book of Job, and I never heard of it before, and I read the book of Job, after the first five verses, I'm like, okay, so the rest of the story is Job raised his children, they became an army of young people, they finished the gospel, and Jesus came. That kind of seems like the logical conclusion of this man's life, yes? I mean, at least the brother converted all the people of the East. But yet, the book of Job is 42 chapters long. What in the world do you have 42 chapters about a person who fears God, he's wealthy, he's praying for his children every day, every day? Well, there was a radio program by a man named Paul Harvey, and he used to have this saying that he would say, and then I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. And the Bible says there was a day when the sons of God came to meet before the Lord. And Satan came also 
among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan said, from the earth, going to and fro, walking back and forth. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is how many like him? How many like him? In the east? There's none like him where? In the what? The whole earth. Can you imagine God is bragging on this man? To the devil. You think you're running things on the earth? Have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him in the entire earth. But he goes on and he says, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Oh, that looks familiar. And the only thing that God mentions about Job is his character. Not his wealth, not his reputation, not him waking up early in the morning. Just fears God, shuns evil, blameless, upright. That's what qualifies him. And notice what the devil says in verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for what? Does Job fear God for what? For nothing. The devil can't question Job's behavior, so he questions his motive. Yeah, it's true. Job is living a faithful life. But let me tell you why he's living a faithful life. You think Job serves you for nothing? Go ahead. Touch his family. Touch his wealth. He'll curse you to your face. You see, God, you, you don't understand. You're like the, the, the biggest, you know, player. You're the biggest owner. You're the biggest investor. You're the biggest pimp. Whatever word you want to use in the game. You give people blessings, they serve you. Sounds like a good deal to me. I wish I could just create things out of thin air. People would probably serve me too. And you know, some of us, I may wonder, do we serve God for nothing? But you know, some of us, we're serving God as long as he keeps my mom alive and she doesn't die of cancer. Some of us are serving God as long as I'm excelling academically. But if I'm praying and I'm having consistent devotions and all of a sudden I'm struggling academically, we're like, well, what's the point of praying? I'm serving God as long as he promises to protect my health as if being vegetarian or vegan guarantees that you'll never get a disease or cancer. So we're serving God for something. And if we don't get that something, then we have an issue with God, we stop serving him. So here becomes the question. At the very heart of Job's life, which is unquestionable, The devil says, you've blessed him. You've placed a hedge around him and all that he has. Take it away and let's see what Job does. So what conclusions can we make from this? The first conclusion that we can make here from the book of Job is that it was never God's idea for Job to suffer. Yes? Yes or no? Whose idea was it? 
Satan's idea. Number two, Job is going through the ordeal he's about to go through to see if Job is faithful or because Job is faithful. Which one is it? It's because he's faithful, right? God says, look, the reason why Job's name is even on the table is because he's living a faithful life. So right here and there, the Bible is telling us, do you and I think in our minds, do we have this concept that if I live a righteous, holy life, I'll never suffer in my life? Well, the book of Job is a wake-up call to say, guess what? It's because you're righteous that you will suffer. Paul puts it this way, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You want to live a godly life, you are inviting the attacks of the devil himself. You are inviting all the forces of hell against you. And Ellen White says, we will be contested on every inch of ground on our way to the kingdom. Some of us think once I start praying, once I get my life together, you think the devil's going to pat you on the back and wish you well? Hey, you made a great choice to follow Jesus. Have a good life. No. The devil starts acting up when you're ready to serve God with all your heart. And I'm telling you because some of you are here and you're like, yeah, this week of prayer, you know, it's been a blessing. I'm reading my Bible. I did the two-week challenge. I'm, I'm studying. I'm praying. I'm seeking God. I'm serious about serving him with all my heart. What do you think is going to happen? I can promise you, you take seriously what we've been talking about in the word of God. And you're like, you know what, Lord? I need that. I'm moving forward in this direction. The devil is about to act a fool in your life. You thought your mom was sick now? You don't know what the devil is going to try now that you're serving God. You think it's hard in temptation now? You and I have no idea what the devil is going to try now that you want to serve God. The book of Job says... Sometimes the righteous suffer. Sometimes the righteous suffer. But then, when you read the book of Job, and you ask yourself, where is Jesus in this? Where is Jesus? And so whenever... I get into this debate about the issue of suffering, and people say, why do bad things happen to good people? I look them in the eye, and I say, if I ever knew a good man, Jesus was a good man. Yes or no? Tell me about his character. It's what? It's perfect. You talk about having ten children? All of us are his children. You talk about wealth, (laughs) Jesus owns everything by inheritance. There is nothing that was made that was not made by him or for him. You talk about reputation, the Bible says he has a name above every name. You talk about priest of his home, I write to you, my little children, that you sin not. And if any man sin, how many? Any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for us. And thus did Jesus continually. If I ever knew a good man, Jesus was a good man. And you say, why do bad things happen to good people? When you look at the cross of Jesus, what you see is that bad things happened to a good man so that good things could happen to bad people. In the book, Night, Reflections on the Holocaust, they tell this story. By the time when in the concentration camp, they were about to hang a nine-year-old boy because he tried to escape from the concentration camp. And everyone thought, there's no way these men are so evil and wicked that they would hang a nine-year-old boy. And as they started walking and Eli was there with his dad and Hitler's army, they had this little practice that whenever people tried to escape and they're about to be executed, they make everybody march in line and walk by the gallows so you can see the person's face and remember it when you think about trying to run away. So as they were lining up, they were ready to move. Eli was walking and he said, as they put the young boy on the chair, he heard a man behind him. Talking. Oh God, no, not this young boy. Surely they won't do it. Surely they won't do it. And he says they started walking towards the gallows and they pulled the chair from the young boy. And he's there hanging on his neck. And as they got close, the soldiers say, Turn your face and look him in the eye. And if you don't turn your face, I will shoot you right now. So as they walk by the gallows, they turn their faces to look at him, and the man behind him says, where is God? Where is God? And Eli put in his book, a voice in me said, I'm right there, hanging on the gallows with that young boy. God enters into our pain. We're not even good people. But Jesus says, everything you feel, I feel. And the gospel is about bad things happen to a good man. Not a good man, the best man. That's what the gospel is about. And we rejoice and celebrate in the cross of Christ that a righteous man was willing to die for an unrighteous man. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. My time is exhausted, so I have to move quickly. 
Are you a person who serves God for something? Have you tried to make an agreement with God? And saying, you know what? Lord, if you do this for me, then I will serve you. That's paganism. That's not Christianity. We serve Jesus for nothing. We can't make deals with God. And maybe you have been serving God for something. Serving God hoping that he will do something or prevent some tragedy from coming to your life. And now you want to say, Lord, give me strength. Put it in my heart to serve you for nothing. To say, I will love Jesus no matter what happens. I will love Jesus no matter what happens. That's true Christianity. If you want to accept that invitation, I just ask that you stand to your feet. Put it in my heart to love you no matter what. And I hope you're not standing just because other people are standing. I'm willing to serve Jesus for nothing. My second invitation, very quickly, are you an individual that have asked this question, why do bad things happen? Why would you let this happen to me? Why did you let this happen to us? And today, God wants to tell you, when you were getting abused, I was there with you. When you were being unloved, I was there with you. Whatever your gallows was, Jesus was hanging there with you. And it's time for us to give up our anger with God. We need to give up our anger and our frustration. Lord, why this? And God is saying, look, I'm in your pain too. I feel it too. And God is asking you to come to the altar today to say, Lord, I'm going to give up my anger. I'm going to give up my resistance to give forgiveness to people. I'm going to surrender my anger and my frustration my pain to Jesus. I'm going to give it up. I just want you to slip out and come. I'm going to give up my anger. God was there with you. He was suffering with you. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. Jesus says, I was there. I was hanging with you.
and I felt your pain. Now bring it to me. Now bring it to me. Because even though one day we'll be resurrected and God will wipe away every tear. But there's one person in heaven who will still have his wounds. And that is Jesus. He will never be healed. He'll never be healed. Always bear the marks in his hands for eternity. So you want to give your pain to God? Come. Your anger, your frustration. Say, when we cannot understand why, we have to trust his heart. Come. I'm going to surrender it to Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are standing, Lord, because we want to pray that you will put it in our hearts to not serve you for a blessing or to serve you so that we do not fall under a curse, but to serve you because we love you. To serve you, Lord, because there is no one kinder than you, because of the deep love with which you have towards us and your mercy, because of who you are. We pray that you would put that in our hearts because it's not natural. And Lord, I pray for those who have come up front to give their anger, their pain, their hatred, their suffering to God. Jesus came to take that upon himself. He enters into our pain and that he was there with us all along. I pray that you'll bless these young people who have come I pray that you would hear the cries that their lips cannot utter. And we ask, Lord, that we would be whole people. That though we may have healed wounds, we will have ugly scars in this life. But that there will come a day when we'll be completely whole. We look forward to that day with hope. And we pray for the grace to carry us through. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.